Good morning. Might be a little cold today. Because we had it, we kind of had to crank it down just to, just to make sure it works today. So we're going to be in Luke chapter 9. You start heading that way. I do like that the, many of you college students are front row down here too. Almost front row. You didn't quite pull it off. <laughs> so uh, this is always next week. You can try again. So Luke chapter 9 this morning. And... Uh, so head that way, get in your Bibles there. Uh, th- this is an event in the life of, uh, of the ministry, the earthly ministry of Christ. It is commonly called the Transfiguration. Uh, it's an amazing event. I think you're going to love it. Uh, it. It's kind of like, uh, I'm this way, I don't know if you're this way. Whenever I see like a curtain because they're doing some sort of construction or remodeling in a store, I can't help but go and just kind of peek behind there to get a preview of what's coming. Is anyone else willing to admit to that? Okay, the rest of you are just better upstanding citizens, I suppose. Uh, so anyway, that kind of that glimpse, here what we're seeing a little bit in this passage is a little bit of kind of pulling back that veil and getting to see something of Christ's glory, something of, of the future, and, and it's going to be, it's kind of that experience anyway. So uh, for a short moment, they see the glory of Jesus that, that we're going to see at the return of Christ. And so it's a taste of what we're going to see someday as well. So uh, let's just read the text, uh, Luke chapter 9, uh, beginning in verse 28 today. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered. And his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it's good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid, and they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud, saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. The grass withers, the flower fades. Let's pray. Lord, what an experience it must have been for these disciples to see the radiant brightness of your glory with their earthly eyes. As we unpack this passage, we we ask, Holy Spirit, please enlighten our minds and, and squeeze out all distractions. May we learn what you desire us to learn, and would we grow in our love for you more and more and more. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. There's a, a band out of Omaha that I learned about only recently. I think they've even disbanded by the time I learned about them. They're a band called Bright Eyes, and they have this song called Southern State. Uh, and in the story of this song, uh, this song called Southern State, it's about a, a man who travels from somewhere in the Midwest down to what he calls the Southern State, Georgia. Um, 
And, and when he meets all these people, and one night these people ask him this question, and, and the question is sung in this, this really emotional, edgy voice, uh, and, and it's said over and over and over again, and they ask this question, are you who you say that you are? And, and you hear that over and over again, are you who you say that you are? And it really sticks with me because that's the question as we've been going through Luke's gospel that we keep seeing being asked of Jesus. Are you who you say that you are? Uh, and it's the question that anyone who's learned anything about Jesus, even, even just basic things about Jesus, begins to ponder this question. Are you who you say that you are? In other words, are you the Christ? Are you really the Son of God? Are you divine? Are you the chosen one of Israel? Are you who you say that you are. And so this amazing moment in history really further answers that question for these three disciples who get to see it. Uh, But not only them, it eventually answers it for everyone who has access to the scriptures and reads this. And so this event then is occurring right after the last one, right? It's uh, eight days or, or about eight days, which is a weird exact phrase but a generalized phrase about eight days after Peter confesses Jesus is the Christ and and, and here Jesus selects uh, just three of the twelve apostles Peter James and John now you might remember that we we saw these three selected for something before back in Luke chapter 8 you don't have to go back but you can if you want Luke Luke chapter 8 verse 51 Jesus permitted these three when Jairus's daughter had, had died to come in and watch her raise her from the dead and they were told don't tell anyone and so these three are getting to see Jesus in a way that even the other nine are not getting to see uh, and, and like many things we, we can only guess the reasons why uh, why these three for some reason, they're, they're chosen out, and we don't really know. I mean, the only thing we really know is they by far have the best nicknames of the 12 apostles. Peter called the Rock, and, and James and John, anyone know what their nickname is together? The Sons of Thunder. It sounds like pro wrestling, doesn't it? The Rock and the Sons of Thunder. Um, for whatever reason, though, Jesus takes them up on this unidentified mountain and, and for this prayer retreat. And so as far as the other nine knew, they're just going with Jesus to pray. That that's what's going to happen. And now, it's a minor point in this passage, but I do want you to think about this. Uh, because it's worth us uh, following the, the, the Savior, our Savior's example sometime, in the way that he always gets away to pray. I mean, how often we see him just go somewhere with no purpose except for he's going to go pray. Now, we live in a great area where there's things to do that. You can go out to the cons at the top of the world, along the Kansas River, just to go out just to pray. I encourage you to think about doing that at some point. Um, to, to have your own kind of prayer retreat. So then, I want us to look at verse 29 to start with here. Luke, who is a doctor, uh, describes the transfiguration in only the way that a doctor could describe it. It's so incredibly understated. He says <clears throat> of Jesus, the appearance of his face was altered. Right? And he writes that down. Uh, the appearance of his face is altered. And I say understated because when you look at the other Gospels, you look at the way that Matthew actually does this. Matthew says, Jesus' face shone like the sun. Shone like the sun. His face shone like the sun. So don't think like bright spotlight on him. It's the exact opposite. It is shining out of his face. The source of this light is Christ, right? And even his clothes were a dazzling white. It's the way Luke puts it. Or if we look at Mark, Mark says, His clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. 
That's the kind of glowing white thing that we're seeing here. And you see the, the shining of Christ's body and the shining of his clothes. This is the physical display of the glory of God at, at play here. And, and you remember... Jesus had glory long before his incarnation, long before he came in, in human flesh. In John 17, 5, Jesus is praying there. It's the high chiefly prayer, and he's praying to his Father. And he says, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. This glory is nothing new for Jesus. It's just being shown to the apostles in, in a way that they've never seen. And, and so what happens here at the very heart then, and, and put simply, is, is what Luke writes there in verse 32. Just, they saw his glory. And now if you're sitting here and, and you're thinking, I wish I could see his glory like this. I wish I could peek behind that curtain like these three got to do. And, and even if in this life you're not going to get to do that, I want you to know, uh, I want you to know if you're thinking that, to remember or to remind you that you are going to see this for sure at the triumphant return of our Lord. And we're going to see this for the rest uh, of eternity. You, you know that prayer I just read you in, in John 17, uh, a few verses later in John 1724, he's still speaking to his father in this high priestly prayer. And Jesus prays this for, for you. He says, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory. That you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. We will get to see that. And so then, as we're looking at the apostles and their response here, one one thing that becomes abundantly clear as you kind of just look at the apostles through the entire uh, New Testament is, is they are not insomniacs. Uh, of all the things they struggle with, they do not struggle to sleep, particularly at the wrong times when they're supposed to be praying, uh, which I know many of us can probably relate to, unfortunately. Uh, they're always falling asleep, and it happens here again, right? Uh, now, to be fair, it's most likely late at night, and we know that because the next passage is going to begin with on the next day. Uh, but regardless... They wake up from this sleep uh, to see Jesus shining, right, like a dazzling sun. sun. And, and then they see Jesus with, uh, you know, with these two other people, as if their heads aren't already spinning from that, right? Uh, they, they realize somehow that this is Moses and this Elijah that are also with him and shining and talking to Jesus. Uh, and they're just, can you imagine now, the shining of, of Moses and Elijah, and we'll get into them here in a minute, but the shining of Moses and Elijah is, is this preview of what our own bodies are going to be like uh, when, when we have glorified bodies. It, what, what they're seeing is actually, again, a preview of what Paul is later going to write about in Philippians uh, 3.21, that God will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. Now, that's a weird idea, right? To know that Jesus is shining is one thing. To think that someday our bodies will have that same share and that same glory as our Savior that we are saved through union with, that is an amazing idea. C.S. Lewis even speaks about this, who I can't stop quoting for some reason lately. Uh, I think I'm up to like four weeks in a row. I swear, no, no C.S. Lewis quotes next week, no matter how great they are. Um, but he says this, he says, the dullest and most uninteresting person you can talk to, and you might have someone in mind now, may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship because you see the glorified body that way now 
Regarding Moses and Elijah, it's not random that it's these two who show up, right? It wasn't like it's just, I don't know, just any two saints go forward. Um, it, it's because, right, these two actually represent the Old Testament. See, in, in Bible times or in Jesus' time and even common today, the Old Testament is often referred to as the law and the prophets. These were the two major categories when you look at the Old Testament of, of, of scriptures, kind of the way that we use the phrase like the ABCs, and we, we just use those three to mean the entire thing. Or even the way we use the word alphabet. That's the Greek, right? Alpha, beta, uh, alphabet. It just represents the entire set of letters that are part of our well, alphabet. It's hard to not use that word now. Um, so anyway... It's these two guys because the law comes from God through Moses and because Elijah is the undisputed heavyweight prophet of the world, right? Because he was able to raise the dead at one point. Uh, he was able to, he's the one who prays down fire against the, the prophets, the false prophets of Baal. He is, he is the prophet that is often just beloved by the, by the Israelites. And so you can see here, Moses represents the law, and Elijah is the prophet, and Jesus, well, listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 5, 17. He says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And so in these three, we are, we are seeing representation here, right? We're, we're seeing the law, we're seeing the prophets, and we're seeing the one who fulfills them both. That alone is amazing, right? But this passage is fascinating for another reason, too. Uh, it also tells us a little bit about the life to come. And it's easy to miss this as we're looking at the glory of Christ in here. Um, so, so keep in mind, at this point in history, Moses has been dead for 15 years. Elijah never died. He was taken up in a whirlwind uh, some 900 years before this moment in history. And if that sounds interesting to you, you can go read it in 2 Kings chapter 2. Not now. Do it later. Um, now, you, you ever gone to someone's house or, or, or someplace? There's been a few times in our life where Laura and I have found us at someone's like wedding venue or some amazing house. And you walk around and you think, wow, that was a really neat place. Pretty amazing. And then suddenly you go through some doors and you just come into some huge area and you're like, what? In the I had no idea this was here. It's just this amazing to, to walk in and see something you didn't know was there. And, and in this moment, that's the experience of the apostles, right? They, they, they peek through this doorway to, to some place that they didn't really know existed. You see then that this passage is teaching us that there is another world beyond the grave where our lives continue on. Not just someday even, but even now. As David Gooding puts it, he says, Our world is not the only one. There is another. The other world is not just the future to our world, but concurrent with it. Though also before it and beyond it. And you think about that, right? You think about your uh, brothers and sisters in Christ who have passed away and, and the idea that there is a, a, a place that they currently exist and live, right? Like, and, and it raises all these questions that we want to ask and we cannot answer. Things like, uh, what in the world have Moses and Elijah actually been doing for 900 and, and 1500 years? What have they been doing? Do people live in stone houses or tree houses or no houses? Where, where do they live? Do, do people remember things about this life? Uh, are they able to reflect in it? Are they, are they able to see what's going on? Are they still watching their favorite baseball team on earth right now? Do they still hate the Yankees? 
I mean, do they eat food currently? All these questions. What, what is worship actually like for them? Right? How many of you as children imagined like heaven? It was almost terrifying because you thought all it was was a church service constantly. Just that's it. Just nothing but a church service constantly. What, what does it look like? What, what does worship look like, though, at this point? And so while there are literally millions of questions that we cannot answer about this other world, as science fiction as this sounds, we know it exists. And we know simply that our fellow Christians who have died are in the good care of our good God now. Not just someday at Christ's return, but now. And here we see that that in the life to come, that believers, just like Moses and Elijah, they have a relationship not only with the Lord, but, but with each other as well. They're part of a conversation, communing together in, in this moment. And so here we get a glimpse beyond the grave, a glimpse of a world full of God's glory, full of His perfection, a world not disfigured by sin. In the words of Tim Keller, the, the world we all want is coming, and in a sense, it already is. The other significance here is the conversation they have, right? What an interesting thing to think these guys come together. They meet Jesus. What, what do they say? We're only told one little thing. You look at verse 25 or 21, 31. Uh, you can see the one thing we know they're talking about. It says, they spoke of Jesus' departure, you know, as though he's about to hop a bus or a plane or cross, right? He, he's about to depart. And sometimes... What's going on in the Greek is, is so significant that our English Bibles will actually point it out to us. It doesn't do it about everything, but this is one of them. You, most of you, if you've got paper Bibles, you're more likely to have this. But you look there. Um, next to the word depart, there, is there a little number there? Uh, you follow that number down. Mine's got a one. If I go to the bottom of the page and, 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 and that word departure, those of you that have it, what's, what's the word there? What's the Greek word being translated? Exodus. That's right. That sounds familiar, right? Exodus seems, I've heard that somewhere. Um, it, it's connecting Jesus' life and death and resurrection uh, to one of the greatest events in Israel's history. To, and you see, in the first Exodus uh, of the Old Testament, God, through Moses, leads his people out of this Egyptian slavery and leads them into the promised land. And in the second Exodus, which we're ta- they're talking about here, the exodus of the new covenant, Jesus leads the people of God out of slavery to sin and into the promised land of his eternal kingdom. And, and this exodus, this departure of Jesus that they're talking about here is of such interest to Elijah and, and Moses because their salvation is also dependent upon it. The work of Christ must be done for them. See, they're just like every other believer at any point in history. We were saved by grace through faith in Jesus. Or as the Old Testament believers would have seen it, faith in the Redeemer, faith in the Savior, the Messiah, faith in the, the promised one of God that was to come, that God had sworn to sin. And, and of course, right, they, they're interested because at this point, Jesus still had not gone and taken the wrath of God. Jesus still had not been nailed to the cross. Jesus had still not been risen from the dead. And so they're talking to him because they know what has to happen. They know better than Peter and James and John know at this point, even though Jesus has told them. Right? They're still waiting for Jesus to raise victoriously. So then let's focus back on the passage here at hand. If, if there were ever a time 
in history to remain silent. You'd think it's right here. But, but as Moses and Elijah are about to leave, Peter panics. And, and is impulsive Peter going to remain silent, you think? Not a chance. Never. He's that guy. And, and so Peter pulls his Savior, you know, he called, pulls Jesus aside. He says, Master, it's, it's good that we're here. Let us make three tents. One for you. And we'll make one for Moses. And we'll make one for Elijah, right? We're going to live here forever. It's going to be glorious. You know, we're just set up camp. P- Peter has dreams of never, ever leaving here, staying forever. Which, which, honestly, I find incredibly encouraging. Because if Peter is just getting a little taste of glory here, of Christ's glory, right? If he's getting a little taste of, uh, of two long-dead saints, uh, you know, brothers in Christ that are talking to each other. If that little taste makes him want to stay there forever, how wonderful can it be? If that's his response, I, I expect we're going to feel the same way about the kingdom of God when it comes fully. You know, the impending death that we tend to, to deeply fear. You start to see things like this and you realize that in a sense, it, it, it's like a child being afraid to leave the parking lot. Only to find when they've done so, they've entered into Disney World. It, it's such a wonderful experience for Peter. And that, that's why we, we, we have that phrase here. I don't know if you ever thought about this. That the mountaintop experience. You ever heard that? Right? Someone goes to a camp. Someone goes to a conference. Some sort of you know, amazing thing where they have no other responsibilities but to praise the Lord. Uh, or to do missions or whatever it might be. And you just want to stay there forever. And we're always saying, you know, you can't, you can't keep that mountaintop experience forever. And you can't. Uh, we, we, you know, we, we have that strong sense, just that passion. We want to keep it forever. But, but, but Peter also, you know, Peter wanted to hold on to that mountaintop experience. Let's just stay here. And in fact, this event will still be on Peter's mind. You can imagine most of his life. We know that he writes about it shortly before his death uh, when he's writing the letters to, to, to Peter and Second Peter. Or, yeah, he's writing not to himself. Uh, when he's writing at Second Peter 1, 16 through 18, he says this. We were eyewitnesses of Jesus' majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And so Peter wants to stay forever. And Peter's plan gets rejected in the most amazing way anyone's plan's ever been rejected. He and everyone else just get swallowed up in this cloud of God the Father's presence that comes at that moment, right? You, you see how quickly these things happen in, this, in your text? You know, um, so it gets rejected. Now, here, here are the two reasons it gets rejected. Uh, first, it wasn't the right time, Peter. This is not the right time. We, we, we should enjoy... Brief glimpses of glory. We should enjoy wonderful times of worship and those those mountaintop experiences, right? But 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 like Peter, there was still work to be done in life. You know, we, we still have people to tell about Jesus. We we still have children to raise. We we, we still have mouths to feed and jobs to do and nations to defend, a, a community to serve. There are still people that you need to meet. 
There's still lives that, you know, to live to the glory of God. And as much as we want to live in that place sometimes, we've got to go and, and live life because God's called us to do so. So it wasn't the right time for, for them to do this. Second reason that Peter's glory camp gets rejected is it's tied to that phrase at the end of verse 33, not knowing what he said. Now, he didn't speak some foreign language. What, what it means here is he, he didn't realize the implication of, of what just came out of his mouth. You see, by, by setting up three tents, right? One for Jesus and one for Moses and one for Elijah. By setting those three up, Peter's implying that the three of them are equal. One tent for each. And remember, that's, that's the very moment that the cloud shows up and overshadows them and engulfs them. And the apostles are terrified. And then the voice of God speaks audibly and basically says, you know, as great as Moses and Elijah are, the man that you've been following, Jesus here, is insanely greater than Moses or Elijah. In that sense, he has no peers. And so remember the, the, the question, right, that we're beginning with, right, about Jesus. Are you who you say that you are? In other words, are you really the Christ? And certainly the bright, uh, you know, brightest lightning, shining light would answer that question, right? But, but you're also getting this emphatic, you know, sense here of who he is by rejecting Peter's assumption that the three of them are on par, and then God actually speaks to answer this question of who Jesus is. I mean, look at it. Listen to what the Father says about Jesus here in verse 35. This is my Son, my chosen one. Listen to Him. It's similar to the baptism of Jesus, right? When God the Father speaks to Him being His Son. Uniquely so. And God calls Jesus here the chosen one. You, you see in the, in the book of Isaiah, this prophetic book, and there's this prophecy there that is fulfilled in Jesus. And as I read this, uh, Isaiah 42.1, I, I want you to notice the word chosen in here. See, God says through Isaiah, says, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one, in whom my soul delights. And the prophecy goes on to say that this chosen one, the chosen one will give his life as a sacrifice for the people of God. It goes on to say that this chosen one would be wounded for our sin, that he would be crushed, that he would be an offering so that God's people, the church, will be certifiably righteous in the sight of our holy God. So Jesus is superior to both Moses, Elijah in every single sense, but particularly we're seeing here in the sense that, that Jesus rightly interprets all the Old Testament writings. He fulfills them. He interprets them. It all culminates in Christ. Again, speaking of the Christ in the future, Deuteronomy, right? Deuteronomy way back, beginning, Torah, first five books of the Bible. Deuteronomy 18, 5, or 15 says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from among your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. That's what we see in our passage here. Listen to Jesus. And yes, listening is absolutely about the authority of Christ. And then they find themselves in this situation, right? So then Peter's glory camp never gets built. Never gets built. The cloud of God's presence there disappears, as do Moses, as does Elijah, leaving just the three of them with Jesus 
because his work is not finished yet. It will be, but it's not yet. And the apostles won't speak of this after, until after the resurrection of Jesus. As far as the other apostles know, they come back, it was a, you know, it was a prayer thing, it was all right. It's okay. Right? They don't know anything. Why? We don't really know, right? Maybe they were terrified. Maybe they just understood that Jesus intended them to have this and, and, and not to share it with everyone else. We, we don't know for sure. But, but you can ask them yourself when, when, when Jesus returns or you die in faith and pass through that doorway. Now we're almost finished. I just want to give one bit of response and, and, and then a bit of application. One bit of application. So first, uh, I know the scriptures are not the same as getting to see Jesus with your own eyes, transformed like lightning, bright sunlight. It's just not the same. I know it's not the same when we come to our Bibles as eavesdropping on the conversation of two guys, who, who, two godly men who have been dead for over a thousand years. It's not the same as hearing God speak audibly to you in a cloud. It's not. But, but these scriptures, right, that you have in the, in the Bible in front of you, whether digital or paper, these scriptures are the voice of God. They really are. They, they reveal to us through the work of the Holy Spirit that Jesus is indeed who He says that He is. The Christ. And these scriptures are what God has chosen to give us for now. So if you want to know God. Do spend time in the Word. Secondly, the application of this passage is really quite obvious if you think about it. I, um, you know, look at, look at the text before. You ask yourself this question. right? It's a question we always, one of the questions we want to be asking ourselves as we read. Is there a command in here to be obeyed? You can narrow it down by looking right at verse 35, right? This is my Son, my chosen one. There's the command coming. Listen to Him. Right? Listen to Him. Yes, and I, I want to say this. We, we tend to go one way with this. We hear that and we just think, okay, obey. Obey, obey the rules that he might give us. Give the direction. And yes, it has to do with our obeying Jesus. It has to do with loving God, loving our neighbors, considering others as more important than ourselves. You know, not hating others, not lusting or lying or so on. But, but it also means that we listen to his promises and his assurances and his comforts. We, we listen to Jesus' promise to forgive your sin when your faith is in Him. We, we listen to Jesus' invitation to, to come and, and be a member of His family, truly, adopted in. We, we listen to Jesus when He says He will never abandon you. You listen to Jesus' assurance that nothing will ever separate you from His love. We listen when Jesus says His power is made perfect in our weakness. We listen when Jesus says you can, find, uh, you can find joy in Him no matter how big of a mess your life currently is. Whatever Jesus says. And listen, that's, that's not just the red letters in your Bible, right? Those are specific quotes of Jesus. But we also need to understand that the idea of the Trinity and this all being the Word of God. That, that it, you know, through the biblically inspired writing, writers, that whatever Jesus says, right? Anything in the Scripture we're to listen to. And we're to listen to, to both to find instructions so that we know how to rightly live our lives. And we're to listen so that we can find comfort that our souls so desperately need. Let's pray.
Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for hearts to know that he is who he says that he is. He is your son, our, our glorious savior. We, we ask that you would enlarge our sense of Jesus' glory. Would you expand our awe of who he is? We thank you for the small taste of eternity that we, we see here in this passage. It leaves so many questions for us to ponder, but we thank you that we, we get a little glimpse behind the curtain. We ask that you'd give us a renewed commitment to, to live this life with all our might in light of the world to, to come and the one that already is. Lord, it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.